Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. In this episode, I'm going to be talking to Dr. Neha Patankar, uh, who is an energy modeler and researcher at Princeton University about the Inflation Reduction Act, which uh, coincidentally was passed through the Senate at about, about five minutes before we recorded this. So welcome to the interview, Neha. Thank you so much for having me here. Well, this is this uh, the introduction of the act or the agreement to the act, which, you know, there was not a lot of anticipation that this was going to happen. I think a lot of a lot of climate activists and other folks are worried about climate in the U.S. were getting fairly skeptical about the prospects of having something pass through Congress. So this was not just the 11th hour. It was probably beyond the 11th hour. Senator Joe Manchin had been the Manson had been the uh, the holdout, and then he came on board. So this is great, and we'll talk about all of that in just a moment. But first, I want to talk about a little bit background for our, our listeners about your project, the Repeat Project at Princeton University under Jesse Jenkins, who's well known in uh, in climate uh, scholarship. So maybe give us a brief introduction to Repeat, please. Sure. So we started this analysis with a Net Zero America project that was um, published back in 2020, December. Um, and so the repeat project is basically a refinement of that project. And that project was looking at the scenarios to get to zero carbon um, energy system by 2050. So in this project, we have um, refined the modeling framework and we have been doing the analysis repeatedly, hence the name. So we have modeled the uh, Build Back Better Act that was proposed first in uh, September of 2021. Uh, then another version of it, which was proposed in November 2021. And uh, subsequent versions, as they were improved and refined, we have been modeling these policies uh, repeatedly and providing an unbiased um, and timely analysis uh, for the impact of these policies on jobs and on uh, capacity of different technologies and how it affects our system. And just as an aside, because this is a bit of a hobby horse uh, for me in Canada, Neha, uh, Canada, you know, I, I interview a fair number of American modelers of various issues around energy and climate. And there's a, I'm always impressed by how much modeling goes on to inform American policymaking, where in Canada, there's, it, it's, it's, it's like a bit of a desert when it comes to modeling. And we're, we're slowly rectifying that the federal government has committed, a, a, I think it was $5 million to do uh, the modeling project now that, that that's going to be, you know, funding some of the kind of work that you, that you're doing. So uh, I'll just flag that in case uh, uh, a new listener isn't familiar with my, that particular hobby horse of mine. Well, look, let's talk about the, uh, Inflation Reduction Act. Um, can you give us a brief overview of it, please? Yeah, it's a huge bill uh, that 
provides $360 billion of investment in clean, uh, clean energy technologies and essentially reduces the emissions by around 40 to 41% compared to the 2005 level uh, by 2030, which is uh, quite close to uh, the Paris Climate Agreement of reducing 50% uh, emissions. And um, I would say it is very close to the um, original Build Back Better Act that was proposed in the Senate um, last year. So uh, Biden committed to uh, reducing emissions economy-wide 50 to 52% by 2030. Under current policies, the U.S. is on track to cut emissions only 24 to 35%, depending on whose analysis we're talking about. So the uh, Inflation Reduction Act gets the U.S. Uh, a lot closer than it would have otherwise. Now let's talk about where those reductions are coming from. I gather that the two big ones are power, the power sector and transportation, 24% and 19% respectively. Yes, correct. So um, power sector is expected to reduce emissions by 360 million uh, metric tons of CO2 equivalent and transmission sector, uh, transportation sector is um, projected to reduce emissions by I think 280 uh, million metric tons. And uh, yeah, those both of those are huge, but there is also a significant amount of emission reductions through efficiency improvements, through carbon capture and sequestration, uh, through forest conservation and um, agricultural land conservation as well. Now, the I mean, this makes a lot of sense to me because uh, power and transportation uh, seem to be the two sectors that are furthest up, up the S-curve in terms of the maturity of the technologies and the adoption. Those, I think it's fair to say that wind, solar, and battery storage and other forms of storage are past their inflection on a point on the S curve. And I think it's fair to say that 2021, at the very latest, uh, electric vehicles, electric light duty uh, cars, at least electric cars, past their inflection point on the S curve. So it makes sense to pour a lot of resources into those two sectors and look to them to, you know, uh, generate the, the biggest emissions reductions. Is that really, it was, was that kind yeah. of a strategy? Yeah, yeah. That's what I would, uh, one point I would like to emphasize is that, um, so subsidies for wind and solar technologies, so production tax credit uh, for wind and investment tax credit for solar, which is 30% right now, it's expiring, but it will extend uh, under the IRA. And these are basically the bread and butter policies that have worked over the last decade. And these policies have reduced the solar um, capital investment cost uh, by 90% over a decade. And for wind, it has reduced the cost by 70% over a decade. So we know these policies work. And um, by extending these policies for the next decade, we are essentially ensuring that these two technologies are going to play a major role in our energy system and reduce emissions significantly. Now, when your group did the modeling uh, for, uh, the, for the uh, provisions in the act, did you break out transportation by light duty, medium duty, and heavy duty? Because uh, my understanding is that even though like heavy duty, for instance, so long haul trucking would be an example, uh, it uh, as a percentage of the vehicles on the road, it's relative, it's quite a bit smaller, but it produces a, a, a fairly large percentage of transportation emissions. So I would have thought that the, by, you know, this act would pour a lot of resources into 
replacing, you know, uh, the semi-tractors and, and, and if nothing else, medium duty, where I, every expert I talk to says that, you know, we're ready uh, to replace uh, diesel and gasoline delivery vans, for instance, we're ready to replace those with electric. So it seems to be low hanging fruit. And I was a little surprised that the, that the, your modeling or didn't see a, a bigger percentage for transportation. Yeah, so majority of the um, spending in the transportation sector is going towards providing rebate for light duty vehicles. So there is a $7,500 uh, rebate for if you have your own personal electric vehicle. Um, but I agree that uh, there is going to be a significant amount of um, expected transportation or vehicle miles traveled reduction due to other investment from the IIHA Act, which is um, Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act that was passed in the Senate last year. So that increases investment in uh, public transport in or electrifies um, railways or uh, buses, but that effect of that is something we have not considered directly in our modeling. And we have focused more on uh, how the light duty vehicle emissions would be reduced uh, with these um, uh, subsidies. So if I, if I understand you correctly, Neha, that there, uh, you modeled the uh, Investment Reduction Act and found in these numbers, but there are other uh, acts, in particular the Infrastructure Act, that will also have an impact on, that will reduce emissions. Um, do you, can you give us even a ballpark figure on what the percentages might be? Uh, and if in fact, that additional spending gets the US to uh, Biden's goal of 50% reductions by 2030. Right, so um, the IIJ Act, uh, which was passed in um, November of last year, reduces emissions to 27% below 2005 levels. And I will not be able to give you uh, exact number of how much transportation sector emission it reduces as we have not modeled that. But um, as compared to the Inflation Reduction Act, it does have uh, a minimal amount of impact on the emission reduction overall. Oh, interesting. Okay. Uh, now, another thing I want to mention or ask you about is industry. And in particular, the oil and gas sector within, within the industry sector, uh, because the, it seems to me that the U.S. and Canada are handling these very differently. Uh, in Canada, oil and gas makes up 26% of national uh, GHG emissions. In fact, the oil sands makes up 11% all on its own. And so the federal government has just, well, um, earlier this year announced an, an oil and gas emissions cap. You know, they're, they're going to say by 2025, you have to be have brought down emissions by X amount. And then every year you have to show a reduction in absolute emissions, even if production is going up. So they've they've targeted oil and gas uh, for emissions. It doesn't seem that that's the same uh, that's uh, been happening in the U.S. And I wonder why. Yeah, that's a great question. So in the U.S., we have. Um, through modeling, we have found that electric sector and transportation sector is relatively easier to decarbonize. Um, and there are industries such as cement industry or chemical industry with very high emission um, emissions from those industries, but they are relatively expensive to decarbonize. So um, it's more about a bang for your buck and where you can get most amount of emissions uh, for the dollar that you're spending. 
there are um, provisions and uh, funding for having um, carbon capture and sequestration systems um, for these high intensive, high emission intensive industries. Um, but you're right, the more of more um, focus of this bill has been on the power sector and on the transportation sector. Now, how much of, of uh, I guess, what's the focus on methane? Because methane is a huge problem uh, in the U.S. Uh, oil and gas uh, sector, particularly in the Permian Basin, where they haven't had takeaway capacity. And so a lot of, uh, of emissions have just been vented. Uh, or I, I saw a, a study 2015 on the Barnett Shale, where 50% of uh, the emissions there uh, actually came from um, broken, uh, it was just infrastructure, like, you know, you had a broken valve, or you had a, a, a lid left open, a door left open, or a lid, uh, I forget what the term is, uh, but anyway, you had a, you, these were fixable problems, Ma maintenance and repair would fix those problems. These are, this is really is low hanging fruit. And I just, I wondered, uh, you know, why maybe there wasn't more attention paid to, to, uh, to methane. And just as an aside, um, the Canadian government is calling, is requiring by 2030, a 75% reduction in methane emissions, because it does see it as a low hanging fruit. Yeah, so in this bill, I want to emphasize that there is a provision for reducing methane. So there is methane fees that is included in the bill. Uh, but uh, they have done a very tricky thing, which I really like. Um, so basically, EPA is already monitoring methane from um, uh, bigger industries uh, that emit more than 25,000 uh, tons of methane per year. Um, so what they have done is that if the industry follows the EPA regulations, then they won't be charged the methane fees. But um, EPA, for, for industries that are emitting more than 25,000 tons, um, EPA has provided around 1.5 billion in funding to help those industries manage those methane emissions. But if the industry do not uh, take steps in this direction, then there will be a $60 per ton uh, methane fees. So um, it's more like, yeah, it, we want you to reduce emissions. We will help you to reduce emissions. But if you don't, then there is a fees associated with it. Uh, so that uh, methane fees provision is included. The old carrot and the stick approach. Yeah, exactly. Got Governments, governments do, do love their their carrots, and uh, sometimes we wish they would wield more sticks. But uh, it sounds like that's the approach that's already being taken by the EPA. Okay, that answers that answers that question. Now another one, and, and eight percent of reductions are going to be coming from buildings, and I I find that fascinating because uh, on the one hand, a lot of uh, American homes are already electrified; they're already using um, heat pumps or they're using electric air conditioning or there was a study done by um, Lucas Davis at uh, at Berkeley uh, who found as quite a, a high percentage of American homes are are already uh, off natural gas uh, so is that is that but it's also the buildings are generally agreed to be a hard to abate sector just because there's so many of them so many of them are older and and it just it's and it, doing it as a one-off makes that's, that's a lot of buildings, millions and millions of buildings. So what's what can you tell us about attempts to the in the act to stimulate the decarbonization of the building stock? Yeah. Uh, so the um, one great thing about the bill is that it has a defense production act for heat pump, 
which gives $8,000 in rebate for low to medium income families. Um, and uh, which accounts, uh, so total for that would be around 4.5 billion uh, for heat pumps. And on the top of that, they're also giving 30% credit for the relatively richer families uh, for installing heat pumps. And that can save um, an average family up to $1,800 in energy bills. And it can, if you're living in the Northern parts of the country, Maine or Minnesota, then it can also save up to $3,000 per year. Um, so there is a significant amount of money given for heat pumps as well as for efficiencies. Um, uh, and I think that's where majority of the gains for, for emission reductions is coming from for the building sector. I have to say my, my own personal experience here is that those programs are very, very effective. Uh, we live in a 26-year-old house. The furnace finally quit last winter. Thank goodness we live in a temperate climate. Otherwise, it would have been a very, very chilly winter. But as it was, we got through with uh, with our fireplace. But then we took advantage of uh, uh, the Canadian uh, government's um, uh, sub, uh, Greener Homes program, which gives $5,000 for a heat pump. And then the, the provincial government had 3000 something like that anyway. And and, and so it, it made sense for us to choose a heat pump. And one of the things I've noticed is how much our energy costs have gone down, even though it's now much, our home is much more comfortable because we have AC uh, in, in the summertime. And I'm going to be very curious to see how this holds up over, over the winter. But it, my, it, uh, my impression from the last, say, three months of watching our energy consumption in our home is that heat pumps are, you know, when you get over the capital cost, are great and really efficient because they don't use a lot of electricity. Yes, exactly. Uh, they are 90% efficient. And plus when the electricity is come, going to come from cleaner sources, it's going to be even more um, cleaner uh, to use heat pumps. So is that, but what, okay, I understand this on the residential side. This makes perfect sense to me. Uh, what about on the commercial side? That always seems to be a sticking point, uh, you know, we have, uh, for one thing, a lot of businesses don't own their their premises. They, they're renters or leasers uh, or lessors, I guess. Uh, so uh, what about uh, on, the, on the commercial industrial side? So there is also a provision for uh, providing subsidies for rooftop solar PV, which could help here. Uh, but apart from that, I'm not very um, aware of other incentives that could be um, uh, that could potentially help reduce emissions in the building sector. However, I will uh, guide you towards, um, so we have been creating an Excel sheet that tracks all of the incentives that are available by sector. So uh, perhaps that would help um, dig okay. a little bit deeper into it. Yeah, fair enough. Um, and, and we should point out that you had three colleagues that worked on this with you. So you didn't model the whole project yourself that uh, you yes. had were responsible for. So I, it may be that I ask you a question for which you don't have the answer because you didn't model it. And that's fair enough. You yes. just let me know when that happens. Now, look, the, the last one here is land carbon sinks. And I have to tell you, uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the carbon credits and using existing carbon sinks uh, to generate credits. And and I'm really skeptical of that. Uh, it just, it look, this looks like this has an, the opportunity for incumbent industries uh, like, you know, oil and gas, for instance, to use those credits to basically maintain the status quo when there's no real no real absolute reduction in, in, in emissions. So what can you tell us about the 6% of emissions reductions that it will be ascribed to land carbon six? 
Um, again, for that question as well, I will have to uh, guide you towards the other colleagues of mine uh, project. And since I have not worked on it, uh, I would like to mention that repeat project directly to not model land uh, sinks or the emission reduction from it. We um, do take the uh, numbers from the energy innovation study um, and their trajectories from it. Um, and uh, yeah, maybe digging deeper into that would help here. Okay. Um, the what we're going to see, let's talk about some of the, the numbers on the, the power sector side, because uh, there's the expectations around the amount of wind and solar that are going to be built is really pretty impressive. Uh, 39 uh, gigawatts of new wind energy per year, 49 gigawatts of new solar per year. And uh, that starts in 2024, so not very far away, and then ramps up towards the end of the decade. Is this doable, do you think? It is historically unprecedented. So we are going to have to do it, but the hope is that the subsidies that this bill is providing is going to incentivize different industries locally um, to ramp up that speed. There is also provision for 10% extra investment tax credit and production tax credit to incentivize um, domestic um, production of solar panels or for wind turbines and um, or encourage um, import of minerals or uh, precious metals or metals that are required for the production of these um, technologies from the free trade countries that includes Canada and Mexico. So it would help um, it will basically incentivize uh, the production of these technologies um, and ho in hopes to also attract the local funding as well. Yeah, you, may, now you mentioned something that has been very controversial. Uh, and on the one hand, uh, you know, at first blush, it looks really good. Uh, the devil's in the details. And that is the requirement to apply, uh, for manufacturers to qualify for the EV tax credit, there has to be a significant percentage of materials uh, that are sourced either in the United States or from uh, countries with which the U.S. has a free trade agreement. And you mentioned Canada uh, and uh, and Mexico. Now, from from our point of view over here in Canada, you know, we're frantically scrambling around thinking about you know where the critical minerals are coming from. But one of the things we know we're not talking about, and it will be a big that's uh, 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 what I'm looking for, uh, an obstacle, impediment, a barrier is the processing of those minerals. Because right now, 80% of that roughly is done in China. So if you want the lithium processed, if you want the manganese and the cobalt and the nickel and all of that, the, the processing capacity is in China and it has to be ramped up here in the US. And is there anything in the bill to help with that? That is correct. So it is going to be a very huge task to accomplish in the next three to four years to ramp up that uh, capacity in the US. And there is a significant amount of incentives um, in terms of uh, subsidies, again, for these technologies or for EV to um, prepare local producers to give out, give out the material that is needed. Uh, but one thing I would like to mention is that this is what we have considered in our modeling. So what we consider is that from now till 2024, we keep the EV sales as they are with the current trajectory. And that in turn account for 
whatever the supply chain issues we may have or the delay in the ramp up of these um, productions that we may face in the next few years. So to 2024, we go with the same trajectory for EV sales. And then after that, we ramp it up um, to um, reflect the subsidies or investment in that sector. Now, for our non-American listeners, of which there are many, uh, can you give us a sense of how U.S. industry is responding to this? Because if if I'm, you know, if I'm uh, somebody who's looking at critical minerals or battery plants, uh, you know, if I'm a, a U.S. Um, uh, automaker like GM or Ford, Tesla, I mean, this looks like a bonanza to me. Uh, because the the Biden has said very clearly, he said in his campaign, I'm, I'm harp on this all the time on this podcast and in my video interviews, Biden said China has overtaken America in EV production and all aspects of the supply chain. And he pledged that by 2030, he would put America, be, America would be number one in front of, in front of China. And an enormous task as we're discovering in this con in this conversation but at the same time that kind of moonshot approach to to these issues i mean you see it reflected in this act and and i'm wondering what industry is saying about it what are what are you know what's wall street saying what are the, the automakers saying those kind of you know trade associations that sort of thing right so uh for right now the subsidies that ev has tesla and um ford are already meeting the number of vehicles that they can sell using that subsidy. And Toyota, GM, and Hyundai are all approaching the ceiling number. So this is going to give it give these manufacturers $60 billion for um, giving subsidies for new EVs that are manufactured here. So that's a large sum of money. And um, that is going to incentivize the local job market in these places where Tesla is moving to Texas for new manufacturing plant or Rivian is going to Georgia or um, again the uh, Michigan area is um, ramping up their production for EVs and these areas are going to get a large amount of um, incentive for increasing employment as well as uh, producing cheaper EVs so the summer sum of money that is given by the government is large enough we think is that um it will drive up enough uh, private funding as well um to ramp up these process in given time but it is by no means a easy feat it is going to take um a lot of efforts and uh, historically unprecedented efforts again to reach that target and i would say if we have any canadian investors uh policymakers and so on listening to this uh pay attention because this is one of the biggest economic opportunities, business opportunities that has come along for Canada in a long time. And we should not miss this, you know, miss this opportunity. So um, one little question I have for you, Neha, is when you were, your team was doing the, the modeling, did you model the macroeconomic impacts of all of this new investment? I mean, this is a lot of money coming into the economy. And it, and if it pulls uh, a lot of private capital in as well. I mean, it's already a fairly hot economy with inflation is a problem. And it's really, you know, the, I think we're all familiar with the with the issue. Uh, but did you model at the, at the macro level? Yes. So we have considered the downward pressure that it puts on the um, natural gas prices or oil prices. Uh, so what we are doing is 
investing in clean energy technologies um, and reducing the demand of uh, oil and gas. And right now, 40% of our inflation is caused by high fuel prices. So by putting a downward pressure on these um, fuels, we are hoping to um, reduce or contain the inflation. Um, however, we do not directly model how it affects the inflation, but um, the more investments in clean energy technologies um, do certainly affect the energy prices. Well, let's talk about the thing you did model, which is the impact on oil and gas consumption. And now this is fascinating because, of course, the American shale producers uh, are, are not raising production. They're in making plenty of money at 80, 90, 100, $120 as a barrel. And they're not listening to Joe Biden uh, and they're not raising their uh, their uh, their production and their supply. And so that's a very interesting way to uh, uh, to tackle fuel induced inflation is to root is to destroy demand for the fuel that is causing the inflation. But the reason I ask you this now, I want to discuss this with you, is the fact that there there is a big contingent in Alberta, which is, you know, is the Texas of of Canada. It's where most of the oil production takes place, who don't understand that demand destruction for oil is coming because of the amount of money that's flowing into the uh, electrification of transportation. I mean, the big OEMs alone, never mind China, never mind India, never mind the smaller ones, are spending $341 billion by 2026 to switch over to electric. And what did your modeling tell you about the degree or the amount of demand destruction for oil out to 2030? That's a good question. So we have done uh, some analysis on how it affects the prices of oil and prices of natural gas. And what we have found is that this downward um, pressure on the demand is going to reduce prices by around 5% for oil and around um, 10 to 20% for gas by 2030. Um, we use the model by resources of resources for future and they provide elasticities for these fuels, which are based on domestic production as well as for foreign production. And um, so using these elasticities of fuel, we conclude that uh, we are going to experience significant amount of price reduction in natural gas prices. I'm, I'm surprised, I have to tell you, I have to, I'm surprised given the electrification of trans, ground transportation that the, uh, the impact on prices is only 5%. I would have, would have thought it would be more. That's a good question. I will have to go back and check uh, with the other team members on that. Yeah, yeah, fair, fair amount, fair, fair, fair uh, comment. Uh, well, now, uh, any final thoughts on this, uh, uh, on the uh, Inflation Reduction Act? Uh, anything that maybe we should have mentioned that we didn't? Um, I think it is the biggest um, energy-related or climate-related bill ever to pass US, U.S. Senate. And it's a very good day to be talking to you about it as it just passed the Senate. So I'm very happy and I'm very, um, uh, very optimistic at this point about the future that we are um, about to witness. Well, uh, we haven't had a lot of optimism uh, in Canada and the U.S. of late, so it's good to hear that you are optimistic. And thank you very much for this. Appreciate your insights. Thank you so much. Great to talk to you.